Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said in his book, Ideas Have Consequences, Hysterical optimism will prevail until the world again admits the existence of tragedy, and it cannot admit the existence of tragedy until it again distinguishes between good and evil. For as the course goes on, the movement turns centrifugal. We rejoice in our abandon and are never so full of the sense of accomplishment as when we have struck some bulwark of our culture a deadly blow. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is culture? What has culture to do with the formation of man and especially the formation of scholars? Why does what we study matter? And how does what we study relate to culture? Today we embark upon a journey with Richard M. Weaver. Our guide on this journey is Dr. Jim Tolman, rhetoric teacher at Wittenberg Academy and author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja. Richard M. Weaver lived from March 3, 1910 until April 2, 1963. Born in North Carolina, raised in Kentucky, and schooled in Tennessee, Kentucky, and Louisiana, Weaver became a bastion of conservative thought and a Southern agrarian apologist, but not before a brief stint in the clutches of socialism and the American Socialist Party. Although the South formed him, Weaver spent most of his postdoctoral teaching career at the University of Chicago. Weaver was a prolific and profound writer for which we all can be grateful. Given his sudden death in 1963 at the age of 53, much of Weaver's writing was published posthumously. Weaver's first book, Ideas Have Consequences, was published in 1948. Weaver's writing, which you will discover on our journey, is such that readers might think it was written today. Weaver has much to teach and we have much to learn and ponder. Dr. Tolman, thank you for joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour. It's all my pleasure, thank you. Dr. Tolman, context always matters and Weaver in his introduction to Ideas Have Consequences seems to fully embrace this idea that context matters. In his introduction, he walks us through chronologically the change in thought over time, leading the discussion with the statement, there is ground for declaring that modern man has become a moral idiot. Dr. Tolman, walk us through Weaver's introduction to Ideas Have Consequences. We will include a link to this section in the episode notes for our listeners, but assuming this is everyone's first formal exposure to Richard M. Weaver, why is his introduction helpful as we embark on a journey through a selection of Weaver's writing over the next weeks? In other words, what does Weaver set us up to ponder? The introduction to Weaver's famous work, Ideas Have Consequences, sets us up to ponder the decline of the West. And it's a sweeping 18-page review of how 
Western man got to the predicament we find ourselves in today. So it speaks really clearly to uh, where we went astray in terms of our philosophical uh, endeavors and the enlightenment and inheritance that we received and where that's taken us and Darwinian thought and where that's taken us and scientism over science. And so those are all really interesting trends that Weaver sets us up to ponder and really informs our thought regarding. But uh, in terms of my teaching, I'm really indebted to Richard Weaver in terms of the cultural role of rhetoric, the relation of dialectic to rhetoric, and a number of the features of the ethics of rhetoric that he discusses in a variety of essays. In fact, Weaver was an essayist, and all of his popular books are collections of essays he either delivered at the request of departments of English or philosophy across the country, or conservative groups invited him to speak quite often. And then those lectures would be turned into essays or essays he wrote in order to speak to trends in society that he took to be inimical to cultural well-being. We hear these words dialectic and rhetoric thrown around. Can you expound further on not only what is dialectic and what is rhetoric, but how do these relate Okay, that is a big question, and I think we'll probably have a really full understanding of those notions and that relationship in four or five episodes from now. In the meantime, just to kind of get the ball rolling, I would like to simply give a thumbnail of dialectic and rhetoric and talk about their relationship very briefly. Perfect. Dialectic can be understood as exemplified in the Socratic method. When you read a Socratic dialogue, you see a lot of question and answer and the questions lead you deeper and deeper into the presuppositions upon which the question at hand is based until, you know, after several pages, some sort of bedrock principle is identified and then the question is raised, you know, how can that be consistent with what we had established already? So they go back, the interlocutor, go back to previously established premises and apply the law of contradiction to the result of their dialectical discussion, which brought them to a potentially opposite claim. And so then they have to resolve that difficulty before they proceed with their discussion. And so the law of contradiction is an essential part of dialectic. Dialectic may also be understood, along with being exemplified in the Socratic method, dialectic may also be understood as a three-step process, which I picked up from my debate coach, 
in my bachelor's program who was articulating it from Richard Weaver's works. The three-step process is you begin with a proposition. What did you learn today while you were down at the city gates? Thrasymachus? Oh, Socrates. It was interesting indeed. We were carrying, a, carrying on about what is the highest good for mankind. So you begin with a proposition, and then you push it to its logical conclusion, drawing out implications. The implications are drawn out by means of questions. Those questions are not random. They take you deeper and deeper into the bedrock assumptions upon which the proposition is based. And then step three, you apply the law of contradiction or the law of non-contradiction as the case may be, depending on how you learned it. I actually learned it by reading I.A. Richards as the law of contradiction. Today, it's very predominantly called the law of non-contradiction, which if you think about it is kind of silly that it could be either the law of contradiction or the law of non-contradiction. I, I enjoy that. So the law of contradiction is something cannot be and not be simultaneously with regard to the same thing. So fundamental to logical thought in the Western tradition is this notion that you cannot embrace opposites about the same thing simultaneously because that's self-contradictory. And since self-contradiction is the most fundamental logical error a person could make, dialectic is a fundamental process in understanding the kind of propositions that, for example, in the Lutheran faith, we hold to be most certainly true. That's dialectic. Dialectic is a means of discerning the truth about propositions that are debatable. That's another way to understand it. So that propositions that are mathematical in nature or based on logical necessity don't really require a dialectical treatment to understand the truth value. But where you have honest disagreement amongst people who are, you know, honest intellectuals, dialectic serves to help determine the truth of propositions that are based on opinion in part and particular interpretations of facts such that honest people can disagree about what is the right way to approach that proposition. And so dialectic is useful in what's called the contingent realm in which, you know, if truth is not determined on the basis of logical necessity or mathematical necessity or causation, you use demonstration in questions of that nature to prove the truth of the proposition. In the contingent realm where opinion may be divided and opinion is what a lot of the argument rests on, then dialectic is useful and rhetoric operates also in the contingent realm because rhetoric is an art of persuasive discourse. It's how when opinions are divided, how you argue your position and argue for the truth as you see it. 
that leads to the first understanding of the relationship of dialectic to rhetoric. They operate in the contingent realm as tools for thought, as Dorothy L. Sayers pointed out, that dialectic is a means of ferreting out the truth of propositions that are debatable. Rhetoric makes the truth dialectic secures appealing to the auditors. And so they work together in that way. There's much more to it than that. But in terms of their status as faculties that are highly related one to another, dialectic and rhetoric, they operate simultaneously within the realm of the contingent to both discover truth and to persuade others about the truth where opinions are divided. So they're very helpful in the moral arena, which is to say the arena of choice and of policy arguments, law, and so forth. Now, this might be the most obvious statement ever, but dialectic and rhetoric depend on the reality and the assurance that there is absolute truth. Yes. And that's important to remember because the vast majority of rhetoricians today have a sophistic orientation which celebrates relativity and social construction of knowledge. And so that's why rhetoric gets a bad rap because people like us who are interested in foundational truth and and find absolutes vital to meaning making and to purposiveness in life cannot abide a system that's entirely fluid. That just leads you to the abyss of moral relativity. And if you want to take seriously the good, the true, and the beautiful, you need to celebrate instead the importance of absolutes and foundational truths. And so rhetoric and dialectic understood in this fashion in the traditional Aristotelian way. I did need to say something about dialectic from the Hegelian point of view versus the Aristotelian point of view. Just a side note, Aristotelian dialectic is a much different proposition than Hegelian dialectic. But today in the postmodern world and primarily in academia, whenever someone talks about dialectic, they're referring to Hegelian dialectic, which is essential to a Marxist worldview, and it's not what we embrace. So a person needs to be careful not to get the two confused. But when it comes to teaching rhetoric classically, the way we do it, Wittenberg Academy, the relationship of dialectic to rhetoric is vital because the aim of education as we embrace it is to cultivate a wise and eloquent piety. The wisdom comes from dialectical training and the eloquence comes from rhetorical training and the piety comes from catechesis. I had an interesting thought. Well, perhaps it was just interesting to me <laughs> as I was <laughs> as I was reading <laughs> as I was reading uh, Weber's introduction to ideas have consequences. And I I know we'll get into this if not today in future episodes. 
But and and part of this came from the discussion that we've been having on Tuesdays with Tolman about out of the silent planet, this idea of curiosity versus fear. And Weaver's discussion about truth and how truth, you know, starting with with William of Ockham and his idea of nominalism, and I know we'll get into that, um, but his idea of nominalism and the fact that the the logical end of that is the denial of of truth, right? Yes. It is difficult perhaps impossible and again i might be making a stretch here but it is nearly impossible to be curious if there is no absolute truth all you can have is fear because you know it's kind of like a a child who when he has no discipline he acts out because he wants to know where is the line you know he wants the the security even if he doesn't know that he wants the security of the law he wants the security of the truth because it 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 gives him that freedom then to be curious and to wonder but if there is no absolute if there are no absolutes if there is no truth then i have to discover all of the truth on my own and that means that everything outside of my experience is unknown and i fear the unknown i can't be curious about about it because if there is truth then everything is known perhaps not by me but it is known and so i can be curious about it which then kind of brings us back to what you just said about dialectic and and rhetoric is that you are discerning the truth among things that are debatable. And, and I think that that distinction is so important. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good insight and I don't have a lot to add to it, to be really honest with you, but where I would take that is social organization. When it comes to, reason discourse in a free society and how you get people to embrace the policies that you perceive to be in the best interest of the nation, for example, or the community, or even the possibility of holding communities together. The whole idea of cultural cohesion totally bound up in what we're talking about. And if people have no consensus about what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful, then the only way to really control them is through fear. Uh, Fear of reprisal, fear of punishment, fear of imprisonment, and so forth. So it's all of these things are vital in a free society. And the great thing about this first 18 pages of ideas have consequences is the way Richard Weaver tracks from the time of William of Ockham, the disillusion of the West, as we disavow, first of all, belief in transcendentals, which leads to being imprisoned within an empirical world eventually. These are broad brushstrokes, right? But it's brilliant the way he discusses it. 
And from that point, how we became captive in the Western world to a train of circumstances which have with perfect logic proceeded from this rejection of transcendentals. Weaver writes, the denial of universals carries with it the denial of everything transcending experience. And so that traps us in a world of causation. And then along comes Darwin. And the logical extension of Darwinism is that volition dies. Man is primarily acted upon by outward forces, therefore no longer responsible for his behavior. And then Weaver goes on. The denial of everything transcending experience means inevitably, though ways are found to hedge on this, the denial of truth. With the denial of objective truth, there's no escape from the relativism of man, the measure of all things. Now, just hold on one second there to realize Richard Weaver's writing this in 1948. Actually, that's when it's published. I think he would have been writing it in 45, 46. So this is his response to the Second World War and what he saw happening in the Western world. And it's so prescient. Today, I think we are in the middle of what he was, what he was foretelling about where the denial of truth will lead us. Then he says, religion itself became suspect. Deism quickly gave way to materialism. Humanity is degraded to the point that, quote, we approach a condition in which we shall be amoral without the capacity to perceive it and degraded without means to measure our descent. In other words, the more we recognize what you and I are talking about today, simultaneously, the less we are capable of dealing with it. That encapsulates where we're at today, in my opinion. It makes my brain hurt. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and as you read Weaver, it just over and over, you think, did he just write this yesterday? Does he know yes. what's going on? You know, I mean, it's it almost takes on almost a, a, a prophetic nature. But that is almost comforting because as you think back, there are there are also things that he writes that you wonder, is is he talking about the fall? I mean, was not that the original sin and the the original deception? And there's there's a quote, and I think you already mentioned that man could realize himself more fully if he would only abandon his belief in the existence of transcendentals. And you had mentioned this earlier, but when I read that, it made me think, does this not sound like the fall? You know, did mm -hmm. God really say, once, we've, once we have abandoned truth, once we have denied truth, once we have done away with the transcendentals, then all we have left for God is ourselves, right? And this is where this um, science versus scientism comes in. And I think- Secular humanism. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes, it can become 
you know, almost <laughs> almost overwhelming. All of this, as we know, comes down to a breaking of the first commandment that we are God and we are responsible for giving all of the first article gifts, which we have no no capacity to give. Yes. Well, make no mistake, Weaver was a Christian. He was a conservative thinker, but he wrote to the thinking public. And so he tried to be a little more subtle, kind of like C.S. Lewis writing fiction in order to articulate Christian truths in a way that um, would be more palatable to people who viewed themselves more as agnostic or you know, above the fundamentalist tendencies of the day or that sort of thing. So uh, he, he definitely had a Christian worldview, but he didn't have Christ all in the forefront of his writing all the time. He was very subtle about how he articulated that, but his moorings are there for sure. And what you were just talking about did remind me also of C.S. Lewis in Paralandra when he goes there. There's a very almost overt, very imaginative retelling of the garden and the fall story only on a different planet with a different group of beings. So it's interesting how C.S. Lewis plays with that idea. But, you know, he could have written another overt Christian book uh, discussing the fall, but he chose to do it imaginatively. And so that's because, you know, there are varieties of ways to articulate these truths. Right. And I think we'll get more into the imagination down the road, but I think that truth and imagination and curiosity, those all play together. Going back to what we were talking about before, that if you don't have truth, you can't be curious. And then you see where that would follow on with its impact on the imagination. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I see the importance of that and we're involved together in educating young people and intellectual curiosity is invaluable. And there have to be ways that you can cultivate that intellectual curiosity and also cultivate intellectual integrity. And when it comes to the contingent realm, if I can return to that, if, if you, and also cultivate intellectual integrity. And when it comes to the contingent realm, if I can return to that, if, if you don't have intellectual integrity, then you can make anyone say anything you want, and the whole enterprise becomes absurd. That reminds me of a, a quote from this passage here, where Richard M. Weaver says, Studies pass into habits, and it is easy to see these changes reflected in the dominant type of leader from epoch to epoch. And thinking about what forms you and and how culture and what is what is shaping the culture shapes the the scholars within that culture. 
So that brings me to, to the question, what is the cultural role of rhetoric, if I can use that phrase? Well, I think we should probably talk about culture beforehand. And before we get into that, I would like to conclude the dialectical flow of that introduction to ideas have consequences, because we left off right before Weaver's conclusion, which was essentially, you need to understand the implications for the condition of modern man from the ideas that we've been pursuing. Ideas have consequences. For what? For the condition of modern man. And that condition is essentially, as you've been getting at, we're lost, we're confused, we're bewildered. That's the condition of postmodern man at any rate. So modernity, which was what Weaver wrote about, is an age of reason and of enlightenment. So knowledge was super important, but if knowledge is defined as immersion in minutia, and there's a drive from curiosity to investigate a great many things, then the world of modern knowledge, as Weaver writes, is like the universe of Eddington. Eddington was a philosopher of science who was philosophizing about the nature of the universe. Expanding by diffusion until it reaches the point of nullity. I'm going to say that again. The world of modern knowledge is like the universe of Eddington, expanding by diffusion until it approaches the point of nullity. I'm going to say that again. The world of modern knowledge is like the universe of Eddington, expanding by diffusion until it approaches the point of nullity. When I first read that, it stuck with me, and I couldn't get away from it, and I pondered it for weeks, that the more we pursue scientific knowledge within a postmodern context, the more questions it raises, and we pursue those questions, and they raise more questions, and it becomes so diffuse, it reminds one of William Butler Yeats's The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. So in other words, what I was saying before about cultural cohesion, the cohesion that you get from a traditional worldview is denigrated to the point that the center no longer holds. So when you talk about the cultural role of rhetoric, that's really the epitome of it, is rhetoric functions both in the arguments people make, but also, and more importantly, their deep rhetoric, the presuppositions they hold that are below the surface of discourse, how they value the world when they're not talking about value. People have to buy into those presuppositions in order to agree with what people say on the surface. And those are where we find the core values of a culture. So that begs a big question. What is a culture? Do you mind if I go there? For just a moment? Please do. Please do. Okay. Okay. 
when I first really wanted to define culture, and it was when I was writing a platonic dialogue, which if you go to the resources page of the rhetoricring.com, you go to helps for classical educators, you scroll down and you find resources. The second resource on there, this is from the 1980s. I wrote a platonic dialogue that is a reflection on what culture is and societal harmony and core values. What are core values? So really, I could read you that whole thing, and that would be my answer to this question, what is culture? But the other writing that I consulted at that time was T.S. Eliot's The Idea of a Christian Society and Notes Towards the Definition of Culture. So he says, a healthy culture is comprised of many institutions operating and interacting in their appropriate spheres to contribute to the better working of society. I, I called this a symphony of society in my dialogue. So a symphony of society is institutions within society having their influence on citizens who are enculturated within that community. A community, the census communist, has a coherent view or confession of the world that they hold in common, which builds commonality, which forms core values and such. But the important thing to remember is any attempt to formulate programmatically the indoctrination that it would take. Now, this is very relevant to education, right? Because in many ways, universities have become indoctrination camps, but and, and schools as well, public schools. So any attempt to programmatically organize a means of propagating that kind of commonality and uniformity and then enforcing it through codes like speech codes and so forth would lead to precisely the kind of fascistic regime and society that we want no part of. So you have to be very careful if you're interested in restoring cultural cohesion and repairing the fabric of a culture that you not get into some sort of utopian attempt to programmatically create all of this common confession. It's it is an intermingling of the doctrine of uh, of the two kingdoms. There's a lot there. <laughs> there are a lot of yeah, questions I know. that I'd love to go with that. Man, that well, was... it's just that's where it takes me. When I start talking about culture, I'm an old culture warrior. And it's hard for me not to view it that way. But the second you try to directly address core values and cultural cohesion, you immediately destroy the basis of free society. And so it's it's ironic and it's counterintuitive. You would think that in order to restore uh, civil society, 
you need to actively engage people in this sort of education. But as a matter of fact, the only way to really do it, you know, actually, this is a good illustration. In his, his volumes on virtue, William Bennett has an essay about the right way and the wrong way to inculcate moral values. And it, it is this in a nutshell. You can directly try to indoctrinate children to see the world in a particular way, or you can introduce them to moral tales and allow the moral tales to take root. And I subscribe to that. I think that's a very important distinction on a public level. Now, privately in the home, catechesis operates differently. But that's why the family is the basic building block of society. You can't approach general education in that same fashion or you immediately lapse into indoctrination. And then you have to start enforcing uh, compliance and that sort of thing. So with indoctrination, a lot of times, or perhaps all the time, you have propaganda and Propaganda is different than rhetoric. Not for some people, but yes, I agree with you. There's a quote near the end of Weaver's introduction to Ideas Have Consequences. He says, Man is constantly being assured today that he has more power than ever before in history, but his daily experience is one of powerlessness. That's a profound statement. Yes. It's profound because we can identify with it. As things whirl out of control and you have anarchists taking over sections of cities in order to completely repudiate everything that's been built on the foundation of the Western tradition, which you embrace and attempt to enculturate young ones into it's it's bewildering it's difficult to see how to where do you begin you know where do you get a toehold trying to discuss with people who don't even believe in truth what would be in our best interest and you have to identify those forces in society. This is going to lead us directly into a discussion of what it means to be a doctor of culture. That's one of the fundamental contributions of Richard Weaver to the sorts of things I like to teach at Wittenberg Academy. It, it influenced most of the oratory that you just posted. But being a doctor of culture presupposes that you have a view of culture that is ideal, that is best for facilitating the environment within which free human beings can become excellent. And traditional liberal arts education aims to do that. That is one of the reasons why in postmodern America, it's become very popular for some people to attack the very notion of liberal arts education and rhetoric in particular as elitist 
and a form of fascism because it's an instrument of oppression. Why? Because it presupposes distinction and hierarchy. And egalitarians cannot abide hierarchy. And so that's the essence of that battle. And it's very bewildering because there's so much support for that viewpoint in our popular media, which, you know, that would be fun to discuss in terms of the great stereopticon, which is one of the early chapters in Ideas Have Consequences. Anyway, all of these elements of Weaverian thought are really important for us today, and they help us understand this cultural crisis that we're in, and they help us understand why it's all so important, why dialectic and rhetoric need to operate together in our education in order to cultivate wisdom and eloquence, and how the cultural role of rhetoric is to help build cultural cohesion, because if we don't somehow restore that, the fabric will just unravel. The center will not hold. He's trying to give us context to understand where we are so that we can live within our context and live faithfully in spite of our context. Right? I, I, yeah, Plato okay. said that the unexamined life is not worth the living. And Weaver's fundamental concern was, as I said earlier, the condition of modern man and how the schools of thought that were being emphasized in academia in his day would reap a whirlwind in terms of dehumanizing individuals. Weaver was a Christian humanist, not a secular humanist, but a Christian humanist celebrates man created in the image of God, imago Dei, and human excellence in terms of vocation and operating for the good of the world. These are very Lutheran concepts that I think Weaver espoused and taught and examined in ways that nobody else has in the Western tradition. But these ideas are all under attack in the intelligentsia today in America. And so it's imperative that we try to understand what he was telling us to pay attention to and that we try to do some of that restorative work ourselves. I'm so looking forward to our coming episodes where we really start to dig in. I mean, we've really only barely scraped the surface in terms of everything that Weaver can teach us. Dr. Tolman, well, any final thoughts for us today? Yeah, I was going to say, if we've succeeded today, people will be curious about checking out the 18-page introduction to Ideas Have Consequences and maybe rereading that if they have it on their shelves. They'll check out the link that you provide to the little dialogue that I wrote long ago and think about Christianity and culture. T.S. Eliot's little book on notes towards the definition of culture would be worthwhile and not, not really difficult to read. 
in one setting. And those would be very worthwhile things to read and contemplate. And of course, our C.S. Lewis discussion is going to hit on a lot of these topics, as a matter of fact, because as we mentioned, you know, in Paralandra, C.S. Lewis thought of a really imaginative way to discuss in a fresh way the the uh, garden story and the fall of man. And so it's going to be good discussion in itself. I would just say that the great stereopticon is a chapter in Ideas Have Consequences that will really come to bear on our discussions of that hideous strength. And the spoiled child psychology is really invaluable in terms of understanding what's going on in Seattle. The power of the word should be read every year devotionally by Christians. It's, it's powerful. It's the final chapter of Ideas Have Consequences. And I understand that you've linked Visions of Order, the cultural crisis of our time, to our um, Wittenberg Hour discussions. And that book is available for very little from Intercollegiate Studies Institute books. And that was Weaver's most mature work. And uh, that collection of essays, especially the reconsideration of man, the very final essay and the very final collection of essays that was published posthumously by Richard Weaver is really insightful and uh, people would love it. And finally, I haven't even talked to you about this yet, um, Jocelyn, but in defense of tradition, which was a years long effort by a gentleman by the name of Ted Smith, who published this collection of unpublished works of Richard Weaver by going around and studying collections at Vanderbilt and the University of Chicago and private family papers of Richard Weaver, and then collected them into a, a volume entitled In Defense of Tradition. And shortly after, he encouraged the readers to take up the work of Richard Weaver to try to do some of that restorative work that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, Ted Smith passed away. And so he got the ball rolling and then left the scene. And I find that unfortunate. And I, I have devoted myself to try and hopefully take up his clarion call. Dr. Tolman, this is the first step on our journey with Richard M. Weaver. Next time, we're going to talk about education and the individual. Let me read just one brief paragraph from the early part of that essay. The greatest school that ever existed, it has been said, consisted of Socrates standing on a street corner with one or two interlocutors. If this remark strikes the average American as merely a bit of fancy, that is because education here today suffers from an unprecedented amount of aimlessness and confusion. This is not to suggest that education in the United States, as compared with other countries, fails to command attention and support. In our laws, we have endorsed it without qualification, and our provision for it, despite some claims to the contrary, has been on a lavish scale. But we behold a situation in which, as the educational plants become larger and more finely appointed, what goes on in them 
becomes more diluted, less serious, less effective in training mind and character, and correspondingly, what comes out of them becomes less equipped for the rigorous tasks of carrying forward an advanced civilization. My, my, he wrote that in 19, in the 1950s. I can't wait to dig in with that one. That will be fantastic. Dr. Tolman, thank you for joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour. I look forward to next time. As do I, Jocelyn. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying the conversations and the insights. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.